War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. You didn't hear me sing that. Well, yes, I probably agree with the words of that song. But our purpose today is less political and more historical and scientific. Today's programme explains how the First World War that began in 1914 put the world's chemists to work. They set to work making chemicals to harm people as well as to heal people, though overall the effects were horrific. In one sense, war was good for science and science was good for war. In a moment, we'll speak with the science author who has assembled the facts on how chemistry was important to the war. And as this is the year when we commemorate a hundred years since that most tragic war, we've devoted the show to hearing about the science of it. It was called A War to End All Wars, but was I just listening to the news and hearing that we started a new war the other weekend? Hey, Roger, you said we weren't going to be political. Uh. But anyway, in this show, we will be telling you lots about the First World War and chemistry. Thank you, Nal. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. And it was in Cambridge that I met Michael Fremantle, today's Science Show guest. He was in town for a Society of Chemical Industry talk on how chemistry had much to do with the outcome of the First World War. But Dr Fremantle will also be reminding us that chemistry was not only the destructive force in the war, but it also protected the troops and healed the wounded. From bullets to bombs, poisonous gases to anaesthetics, Michael tells us how chemistry found a role in the trenches and hospitals, on the ground, in the air and at sea. Now, Michael Fremantle has not only written two books on the subject of the First World War, more on those later, he's also had many important roles, such as working for IUPAC, the people that decide what chemicals should be called. But our author's name will be best known to those who studied chemistry a while ago. Dr. Fremantle wrote the chemistry textbooks that thousands of students and teachers used in school. If only he knew how many times a teacher told the class, get out your Fremantle, turn to page 106. It's a claim to fame, but today he doesn't talk about that, but talks about the chemistry of World War I based on his research. Roger started by asking him about his book. I've written two books on the topic. One was published in 2012. It was called Gas, Gas, Quick Boys, which is a line from Wilfred Owen's poem Dolce e Decorum Est, which is about chlorine gas poisoning. And then last week I had another book published on a similar topic called The Chemist War. 1914, 1918, which is more focusing on the chemists who worked through the war and were killed in the war. Now, what fascinated me was that back in 2009, when I first started looking into all this, I couldn't find one book which covered all the chemical aspects of the First World War. I could find books on poison gases, but not books on explosives and the chemical aspects of the First World War. So that's why I decided to write the book in the first place. Now, when you think about it, Most people wouldn't realise that the First World War, there was death and destruction, slaughter, carnage, on an industrial scale. Something like 10 million members of the armed forces were killed in the war. Not just from shelling and from machine gun fire, but also from disease and for other causes. And a further 5 or 6 or 7 million civilians also died as a result of the war. Some were caught in the crossfire, but also others were driven out of their towns 
because of the shelling and the bombing. And they had to live in terribly squalid conditions and they died from disease in their droves. So the whole epidemics of diseases like typhus, especially on the Eastern Front. So five or six million people died as a result of the war. Now, that is well known, the number of casualties and deaths in the war. But what is less well known is that that industrial-scale death and destruction would not have been possible without the industrial-scale production of chemicals. And that's one of the main points I make in my presentation. So for that reason, some people, especially chemists, have called the First World War the Chemist War. Because without chemicals, neither side could have conducted the war. There's the obvious association between the war and chemical warfare, use of poison gases. I mean, when you think of it, most of the time, the opposing armies, especially during the trench warfare, the war of attrition, were firing chemicals at one another. Explosives, high explosives, gases, smokes, incendiaries, and so on. So, and to fire those chemicals at each other, they needed propellants. And to fire those propellants you needed primary explosives. So there's a whole chain of explosives that were needed for the ammunition to conduct the war. Explosives were an important component of the chemist's war. There was chemical warfare, explosives, but there were also metals. When you think about it, the guns, the ammunition, relied on the production of metals, iron and steel, but also aluminium metals. For for example, the Zeppelins used alloy airframes which are made from aluminium, tin for the food, tin cans, lead for the bullets and so on. And all these metals had to be extracted from the earth by chemical processes. Take a typical bullet that is used in a machine gun or a rifle or a pistol. It might contain lead. Lead is a soft metal, so another semi-metal would be added, antimony, to harden it, and that would be encased in a nickel sheath. So there you have three chemical elements. They are found on the Earth's crust as sulphides, sulphide minerals. So to extract the metal, you'd have to remove the sulphide. You convert, essentially convert the nickel sulphide, or whatever metal it is, to an oxide in a process called roasting, and then you remove the oxygen in a process called reduction, using coke or carbon. So there's a lot of chemistry just in producing the metals, but also chemical compounds. These are elements I was talking about. Many chemical compounds were used in the First World War. And the primary explosive, the one that, when you pull the trigger of a gun, an explosive was mercury fulminate. Is it? And that's made from mercury and nitric acid and ethanol. And that's a highly dangerous chemical. You just have to look at it and it explodes. This is the primary. Like the powder that you get in a percussion cap when you fire a pistol. Oh, yes. Right? It contained the primary explosive, which would be mercury fulminate, There'd be another chemical called antimony trisulfide, which would be a combustible material, so that when the the firing pin hit the percussion cap, the mercury fulminate would explode because it detonates with shock or friction. And that would create a flame. But for it to burn, you'd need an oxidant. So you put in something like potassium chloride, which is a very strong oxidant. So the, the composition even of the explosive percussion cap would t- contain three different chemicals. And then the flame would then ignite the gunpowder or the cordite. Cordite itself, which is called the smokeless gunpowder, when it burns, uh, explodes, it produces a lot of smoke because it produces a highly complex series of chemical reactions and lots of different chemicals. Cordite is what's called a smokeless powder, and it consisted of nitroglycerine, okay. nitrocellulose, or gun cotton, and petroleum jelly mixed up, 
Right? So there again, you have a lot of chemistry just involved in the propellants. So explosives were an important component of the chemistry of the First World War. We've had poison gases, there's metals. And also, you think of this, that every single soldier who fought in the war, and there's something like 70 million or so military personnel who fought in the First World War, they all wore uniforms. Those uniforms were coloured with chemicals, dyes, pigments, and so on. They had to be manufactured by chemistry. Now, that created a problem for the Americans and the British because before the war, the Germans' chemical industry more or less monopolised the production of synthetic organic dyes that made colours like khaki and so on. So Britain, once the war started, or once America entered the war, had to enter a crash programme to produce their own dyes. And then you have other aspects, the sort of care of the sick and wounded. A thing that really surprised me is that most of the wars of the 19th century, ranging from the Napoleonic Wars right through to the Crimean Wars, the Boer Wars, the American Civil War, 80% of all the men who died on the battlefield died from disease. Oh. Only about 20% died from bullet wounds and so on, shellfire, because they lived in squalor conditions, rat-infested, slice-infested, fly-infested trenches or what have you. Now, in this First World War, that percentage was reversed. Only 20% of the men who died in the war died from disease. Now, 20% of 10 million is still a lot of men, like 2 million men. So there is a reversal here from the previous wars, where disease was rampant, to the First World War. And that was largely due to better medical facilities. The Royal Army Medical Corps didn't start until 1890. Nurses went out to the front in droves. The VADs, voluntary aid detachments, and so on. Better sanitation. Italians would have their own sanitary officers, so they dug the latrines away from the trenches. Better hygiene. Troops were taught to wash their hands, and so on and so forth. And then we had antiseptics, disinfectants in the trenches, and then better care of the sick and wounded than the casualty clearing stations, the military hospitals, use of various chemicals like anaesthetics, antiseptics, analgesics, painkillers. So chemistry really played a dual role in the First World War. First of all, it was used to exploit or killing people, like in explosives and chemical warfare. But it's also used for saving life. You think of gas masks. Yes. They save lives. A gas mask, typically the ones that were developed later in the war, the British box respirator, for example, would contain three types of chemicals. Oh, yes, what were they? They were activated charcoal, yes. which is a highly porous form of charcoal. Activated charcoal would trap the molecules of the toxic gases inside, like a sponge. There were alkaline materials, lime, soda lime, which is basically calcium oxide and sodium hydroxide and things like that, which would neutralise acidic gases like chlorine. And there are oxidants like potassium permanganate, which would break up other types of gases like phosgene and so on. They'd oxidise and then break them up into harmless chemicals. So there'd be typical mixtures of all three. That was a protective role of chemistry. Same as the dyes were a protective role of chemistry because they provided camouflage. In the 19th century, most European armies wore brightly coloured uniforms. You know, the British wore red uniforms. And this is because of the fog of war. They could see each other. It's like a football team wearing the same colours. With the advent of the rifle in the middle of the 19th century, a rifle basically has a barrel with a helical screw inside. Now, before that, armies used muskets, which were front-loading, muzzle-loading. So they stuffed the gunpowder in, put the cannonball in, and then fired it. It created a lot of smoke. 
But with the advent of the rifle, you could fire a bullet at much longer range, something like one and a half miles, sometimes much more accurately. So anybody who's wearing a brightly coloured uniform could easily be picked off at a distance. Mm. So then armies began to adopt drab coloured uniforms, like khaki, or the Germans had field grey. But all those uniforms needed chemicals, dyes, to produce them. And Germany was making the dyes? They made the synthetic organic dyes from coal tar, basically they're coal tar dyes, and they're exporting about 90 to 95% of the dyes, and also pharmaceutical products around the world. I mean, Germany had an immensely powerful chemical industry. And when the First World War started, all that had to stop because of the British naval embargo. So Britain had to embark on a crash programme, produce its own dyes and also pharmaceutical products. The story goes that Germany, like a lot of people, was importing their nitrates mm-hmm. from somewhere like Chile. Right. Chili saltpeter, they dug it out of the ground. Saltpeter is... Saltpeter is potassium nitrate. They use chili saltpeter, which is sodium nitrate. And they needed to find a way to replace that source. Yeah, the story is, to make explosives like TNT, trinitride toluene, you had to nitrate toluene, which you got from coal tar. And to nitrate it, you needed two acids, sulfuric acid and nitric acid. The standard way of making nitric acid at the time was to take the chili saltpeter, which is a sodium nitrate, add acid to it, sulfuric acid, and you've got nitric acid. Of course. Right? Yeah. But with the British naval blockade, Germany was unable to import sufficient quantities of chili saltpeter, sodium nitrate. So it started the nitrates needed to make nitric acid. So it would have run out of explosives very quickly, because Germany only stockpiled enough explosives and shells for a very short war. Everybody knows that they're expecting a very... Everybody's expecting a very short war. The war will be over by Christmas. Mm. It's only when trench warfare started, you got this war of attrition, that both sides needed to consume vast quantities of chemicals. Now, fortunately, this guy called Fritz Haber had discovered a way of converting the nitrogen in air into ammonia, nitrogen fixation. He won the Nobel Prize for that, Fritz Haber. Mm. And then another German chemist called Wilhelm Oswald found a way of converting ammonia into nitric acid using a platinum catalyst. So they could go down that route. They could convert the nitrogen in the air into nitric acid needed for explosives. I mean, that wasn't the only route to get nitric acid. You could get ammonia and these chemicals from coal, from animal dung and guano and things like that, but not in large quantities. So I have a whole chapter on this in my new book, which was published last week, oh. on non-nitrogen fixation. But oh. certainly that was a major problem. Um, if it hadn't been for uh, Fritz Haber and Oswald, then Germany couldn't have continued the war for four years. And there's some irony, isn't there, that he wins the Nobel Peace Prize for something that ended up as a war item. Well, he found a way of fixing nitrogen from the air into ammonia, now, if you read my book, I mean, there's a whole chapter devoted to Fritz Haber in my, in my new book. I think he is probably the, one of the most important chemists of the 20th century for a number of reasons. First of all, he is called the father of modern chemical warfare. He supervised in the development of chlorine gas as a chemical weapon. He um, found a way of converting nitrogen in, in air into ammonia, which was used initially as a fertilizer, making ammonium nitrate, ammonium sulfate. So he is reckoned to save millions of people from starvation. 
not initially. And in one estimate, the population boom of the 20th century can be traced back to Fritz Harvest's discovery of the development of nitrogenous fertilizers in massive quantities. And one person, and there's a quote in my book, says that two-fifths, 40% of the people alive today on Earth would not be alive if it hadn't been for Fritz Harvest's discovery because of better food production, so more wheat and so on and so forth. So he is famous for converting, as it said, bread from air, as it's called. <laughs> and I make the point it's also explosives from air because that, the same nitrogen was also used to make explosives. Did he have a Cambridge connection? Did he move to Cambridge? Yeah, right at the end of his life. He went into exile when the Nazis came into power. He was head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry, or Electrochemistry and Physical Chemistry. And when the Nazis came to power, he was asked to get rid of all the Jews. He was Jewish himself. From his institute, he refused. Well, he, he helped them to get other jobs. But because he'd been involved in the war, he was exempt. But then he went into exile, and he ended up in Cambridge at the invitation of Sir William Pope, who was president of the Royal Society of Chemistry and president of IUPAC and also did a lot of work on mustard gas for the British. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Thanks there to Dr. Michael Fremantle, author of the just-out book The Chemist's War, 1914-1918. to And also another title, Gas, 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 Quick Boys, How Chemistry Changed the First World War. We will put those links to the titles on our podcast page. Okay, so how are you finding it so far, Neil? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a, a grim introduction to the show. I've been looking at Dr. Fremantle's book, and there's a quote in the preface that really needs to be heard. Okay, let's hear it. It's a paragraph. It's a good paragraph. Long. Off you go. It's a long one. So this is from Newton D. Baker, U.S. Secretary of War, and he was speaking in 1919. I have been on the battlefields. I know what war means. I have been in hospitals. I go to them yet, filled with the wreckage of this war, and when you think this is but a sample, and count up the cost of this war, nine or ten million men in the flower of their youth, the strongest, the most virile, out of all the most civilised nations on the earth, dead. When you count the orphanage and widowhood, the withdrawal of the vast energy from the productive force of civilization, when you think of the waste of only the material side, the amount they spend in money, $200,000 million, and if you try to get some idea of what that is, you look in the world's almanac and find the total value of the United States, of all the real and personal property in it, all the houses and all the lands and all improvements thereon, since they took it from the Indians, telegraphs, jewellery and money, all of it added together amounts to $186,000 million. Wow. When we think of these things, we are filled with amazement. We have paid not with king's ransom, but with the price of civilization, and we have wasted a heritage greater in value than the aggregate value of the greatest country that ever existed on the face of the earth. Wow. I haven't quite heard anything so damning of an already damned war. The speaker... Newton D. Baker is easily looked up, and he was an outspoken politician. He's a U.S. Secretary of War who, on seeing things for himself, became a pacifist. And that's remarkable. In fact, if any listener ever gets a job interview for Secretary of War, I suggest you don't mention the pacifist thing. (laughs) It's a word you probably shouldn't bring up, yeah. But maybe we need more pacifists running wars, right? Yeah, good point, Niall. Did you know that the odd fact, this is quite an interesting one, that at one point chemical weapons were considered by the British to be a more humane way of killing people. 
Yosh, no. Well, looking further, as well as that chilling quote we have just heard, we went looking for the chemist's views on the materials that they had been making, and we found them at the USA National Center for Biotechnology Information. Now, there's a speech recorded there that says that the use of chemical weapons may be best understood by listening to the scientists themselves and see what they had to say. And writing in the 1960s, chemist James Conant, who directed the US poison gas production during World War I, said... To me, the development of new and more gases seemed no more immoral than the manufacture of explosives and guns. I did not see in 1917 why tearing a man's guts out with a high-explosive shell is to be preferred to maiming him with chemicals attacking his lungs or skin. All more, to me, is immoral. Again, these are the words of a chemist who was involved in World War I weapon production. And on the German side, Otto Hahn, a future Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, no less, was recruited by Fritz Haber to the German Chemical Weapons Programme. Otto Hahn went on to the Eastern Front to see the capabilities of this new weapon. The experience left him profoundly shaken. He said, I was very ashamed and deeply agitated. First, we attacked the Russian soldiers with our gas, and then, when we saw the poor chaps lying on the ground, slowly dying, we restored their breathing with our rescue equipment. The total insanity of war became obvious to us. First, one attempts to eliminate the unknown enemy in his trench, but when one comes face to face with him, one cannot bear it and sets about helping him. Yet often, we could no longer save the poor victims. More grim. Another area of chemistry concerns the use of metal helmets in the war. Surprisingly, I think, for the first couple of years of World War I, none of the countries provided steel helmets to their troops. Soldiers of most nations then went into battle wearing cloth caps that offered no protection from modern weapons. Even the German troops wore a traditional leather hat. Um, this was called the Pickelhauber, and it's that pointy German hat you will have seen in films. The huge number of lethal head wounds inflicted by artillery on, on the French led them to be first to introduce the steel helmet. That was in 1915, a year into the war. The first French helmets were bowl-shaped steel skull caps worn under their cloth caps. These helmets were then replaced by something called the Adrian helmet, and this helmet was meant to protect them against shrapnel. I thought that the helmets were designed to protect the wearers from bullets, no? Well, I did so too, but originally, no. The first British helmet was made of mild steel, but within weeks they changed the spec to a harder steel. I mean, they could have tested it before they sent them out. <laughs> they did this by adding 12% manganese to make the steel harder than mild steel. And this protected the uh, soldier against shrapnel balls hitting them from above. It could also protect them from a bullet fired about three metres away. But as much as helmets were needed, British helmet production couldn't actually keep up. So there were far from enough helmets to equip every man, would you believe? The helmets were therefore kept in the frontline stores and were passed on to the fresh, alive soldiers arriving to replace those who left the trenches. 
in a worse condition. It was not until 1916, two years into the war, that one million helmets had been produced and they were issued to all. That's really interesting. And here's, I, well, I've got a bit of a fact for you now. It's an interesting one. It's, it's good. As you said, at the beginning of the First World War, the British soldiers wore only the traditional brown cloth cap and metal helmets weren't provided. Of course, and alarmingly, a high proportion of men suffered head injuries. But after they introduced metal helmets, the war office was amazed to discover that the incidence of head injuries increased. Hmm. So here's a question. Why should the number of head injuries increase when men wore metal helmets rather than cloth caps? I am none the wiser. I don't know. Surely head injuries should decrease if they wore metal helmets. You would think so, but the hospitals near the fighting kept records of casualties. If a man arrived at the hospital with a head wound alive, he would be listed as head wound. If a man was dead, he would be listed, surprisingly, as dead. After metal helmets were introduced, a man hit on the head and living was listed as head wound. The number of head wounds increased simply because it was made up of men who would have died and been listed as dead had they not been wearing helmets. Helmets decreased the number listed as dead, but increased the number listed as head wound. That's a neat bit of statistics indeed. But can we end this section with something more jolly? A joke, maybe? Okay, go on then. Okay, this is for the chemists who remember that salt or sodium chloride is NaCl and that sodium hydroxide, NaOH, is a base. Here goes a chemistry teacher type joke. A chemistry teacher gets the job of a radio operator in the First World War. He soon becomes familiar with the military habit of abbreviating everything, you know, HQ for headquarters and all that. After his unit comes under attack, he urgently radios a message to headquarters. NACL over NEOH. NACL over NEOH, he says. NACL over NAOH, shouts his officer. What do you mean? The base is under assault, came the reply. (laughs) Gosh, have you considered going on live at the Apollo, Rod? Time for a jingle. (laughs) That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.